When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spike's columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. And filling in for Tom Slater, we have Spike's columnist and lawyer at Murray Human, Luke Gittos. Hello. Coming up on today's show, we'll be asking if the tide is turning against transgender ideology, what's gone wrong with Britain's two main political parties, and if it's okay for the England women's football team to be all white. So this week has been quite a torrid week for trans activists, I think it's fair to say. It began with Stonewall, the LGBT rights charity, having to apologise and backtrack on a tweet claiming that children can have a trans identity as young as two years old. It's ended on the you know, on the day we're recording this um, with the NHS shutting down the Tavistock Clinic, its only specialist clinic for um, children struggling with their gender identity. And then in the middle of it all, we had this, um, we had Alison Bailey's case reach a verdict. This barrister has won her discrimination case uh, against her chambers, and it was to do with her gender critical views. Luke, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about this case? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating insight into cancel culture, to mm. be frank. It starts with um, Garden Court Chambers, very prominent chambers in London, signing up to Stonewall's Diversity Champions Programme, which, by the way, is a fantastic grift mm. because Stonewall effectively charged big organisations two grand a year to advise them how to become more trans-inclusionary. Mm. And the judgment basically said that Stonewall did little else other than sort of advise as to what pronouns to use in which circumstance. So you think Stonewall are onto a great business idea here. They're <laughs> raising enormous amounts of money by doing very little. But anyway, um, Garden Court Chambers sign up to this programme without any consultation from their members. And Alison Bailey replies to the email announcing this affiliation in uh, by objecting and saying, I'm sorry, I don't think that Garden Court should be signing up to this. I have a number of objections to the way that Stonewall uh, promote what she called trans ideology. Um, and for that, she suffered greatly. Yeah. She um, received a number of emails, you know, saying that her views were transphobic. And eventually this culminated in an allegation against Garden Court that they had effectively denied her work uh, as a result of her views, that she'd lost income as a result of that. The judgment that we have shows that she won, she partially won mm. in her claim against Garden Court. So uh, Garden Court have been ordered to pay her damages for discriminating against her for her, for her gender critical beliefs. She lost her case against Stonewall because uh, she couldn't prove that Stonewall were the motor behind this discrimination. And Garden Court have come out and said that um, she also, and pointed out right, rightly, that she also lost um, in her claim that Garden Court's discrimination led to any uh, loss in her income. But that makes sense because it's very difficult to prove a direct correlation between yeah. this discrimination and a, and a loss in income, particularly when barristers are self-employed and they rely on work coming into the chambers for them, developing relationships, that sort of thing. So it could have been affected by all sorts of different, all sorts of different reasons. So it was difficult for her to prove that she'd actively lost income from this. But what she did prove is that Garden Court have discriminated against her. And 
the reason I say it's a really interesting insight into cancel culture is that this is precisely how it unfolds. You sometimes hear people say about cancel culture that, oh, well, it doesn't exist yeah. because anyone who complains about it are rich journalists who have access to broadsheet newspapers, etc. But cancel culture is much more insidious than that. It exists when someone expresses an opinion and that opinion is met with opprobrium. Mm. And Alison Bailey suffered opprobrium as a result of announcing her view. And she was very brave to do it. But you can be sure that there are people up and down the country who hold these views in their workplaces who were subjected to training and, uh, you know, and information and, and, and compulsory steps in order to uh, promote a particular way of thinking, who don't have the same courage that Alison Bailey does. Yeah. And so then keep quiet. And that's how cancel culture functions. So the judgment itself is a really insi interesting insight into how this works. And thank goodness Alison Bailey took the stand that she did. And Ella, in terms of the, you know, Alison Bailey's views specifically, or these kind of gender critical views, Aren't they just what a lot of people would describe as common sense? You know, the belief that men have penises, women have vaginas. And one thing that Alison Bailey was talking about was lesbians like to have sex with women, not people with penises. Yeah, I think it's really important to point out that Bailey wasn't mounting some kind of campaign to enact change or discrimination within her workplace. She wasn't saying, mm. I would quite like Garden Court Chambers to never hire a trans person or anything like that. <laughs> it, she was literally saying, I hold a view that has been held for centuries <laughs> by, Millennia. but yeah, forever <laughs> by, by, you know, human beings that generally speaking, we split into two, the population splits into two groups, men and women. And for her as a lesbian, mm. uh, funnily enough, that becomes quite important in, in the way you talk about people. Um, and it's been remarkable watching the reaction on social media because, you know, and, and Luke will know more about this, but the whole sort of nature of how you describe a win in yeah. a case like this, people have said, oh, this is a great victory for Stonewall. And, you know, any way you look at it, whether it's, you know, pointing out that she partially won or this kind of like the detail about the income case and things like that, it's quite clear that Stonewall has come out of this very, very bruised. I yeah. mean, the idea that any organisation would now sign up to, willingly sign up to um, <laughs> this kind of, this organisation Stonewall that not only holds these kind of, uh, you know, really quite extreme views in relation to forcing people to, or at least, you know, heavily encouraging people to display their pronouns and things like that, but also has, as I understand it, basically said, you know, backed away from Khan Court Chambers and said, well, we only advised you with what to do. Yeah. You think, hang on a minute, I'm paying two grand to now be sort of ditched by you when it really matters. <laughs> and, and, you know, on top of that, the kind of, I think the the sort of the week that they've had with this ridiculous tweet about trans two-year-olds mm. at nursery and things like that, I think it's becoming more and more obvious, actually, the more Stonewall gets into the spotlight to sensible people that this is an organization that is just way out in the wilderness in terms of, you know, being in touch with how people think about things. And it's, you know, you know, I know you don't use the word extreme very often, yeah. but the views it holds in relation to gender ideology are so extreme that your average trans person doesn't agree with them. I mean, to say that a two-year-old can hold, uh, have a trans identity is, is clearly an extreme position. Well, the remarkable thing about that was they first of all suggested that and then they came back a day later on Twitter and said, some people have misunderstood what we, you know, what we said. Actually, what we said really is that we don't work with, we don't do any nursery education. But what we really think is that, you know, very young children should just be allowed to get on to learn and know about the world without having adult ideas imposed upon them. Mm. 
And you're like, the very fact that the kid's in nursery means that they've had an adult idea imposed upon them. So I have no sense of how child development works. And I think that's probably what frightens people because you think if you've got really no concept of how kids understand and interact with the world, then why the hell are you being allowed into these institutions in order to influence the way they think and operate? Well, as many people have pointed out, Stonewall does, you know, play a role and has developed guidance for children and parents and, you know, in how to approach their trans identity anyway. So, you know, who's imposing adult ideas on kids is the, is the question there. This ties into the Tavistock story really yeah. nicely because what the CAST review, so the independent review into the provision of services for child for children with gender dysmorphia. Dysphoria. The, dysphoria. The way that they describe the services offered by the Tavistock is that they were way too affirming. Mm. And not just that, but that these children were being treated with no reference to other areas of their healthcare. So, for example, there was no interaction between what the Tavistock were doing and, for example, mental health services mm. or services related to learning difficulties by way of example. And the result of that was that the Cassidy found that a disproportionate number of, exam for example, autistic children yeah. were having interventions into their gender um, without any reference to any other aspect of their and healthcare. These are quite serious interventions involving puberty blocking drugs and potentially cross-sex hormones and things like that. Exactly right. And... So what could be good about the closure of the Tavistock is that they're now anticipating a far more integrated approach to this issue, mm. which I think is the way to go. Yeah. It's we're going to have the closure of the Tavistock and the opening of a number of regional centres, which will be far more interactive, will, will interact with other areas of healthcare. And I think we could look back on Tavistock and think, how did we let this happen? Mm. That uh, the one particular issue was dealt with almost entirely in isolation from the rest of a child's care. And when, if you think that that is happening with children as young as two years old, that is very, very frightening indeed. And Ella, you, you've um, spoken to whistleblowers from the Tavistock Clinic a few mm. a few years ago. I mean, what did they? Yeah, say? back in back in 2020, for Spiked, I interviewed Marcus and Susan Evans, who are a married couple. Who Marcus was is a psychotherapist and was a governor at the Tavistock, and Susan worked as a psychiatric nurse there. And actually you know, a long, long time ago, years and years and years ago, particularly Susan was raising concerns about what was going on at the Tavistock. Um, and, you know, uh, Marcus resigned as a result of some of the concerns that he had basically about kids just being fast tracked through. Mm. And they are both two professionals who, you know, entered their profession with a deep belief in the positives and the potential for therapy for, yeah. for, you know, the idea that you would be able to talk to particularly a young person about their um, dysmorphia about their dysphoria and you know have a kid that comes in and says I hate the way I look and I want to change it and be able to by you know through therapeutic means talk to them and figure out what actually was really going on and they mm. said nine times out of ten there was something there was something completely different going on as there often is with kids yeah. they're not straight with you and the thing about you know what happened with them and with others who came out and spoke out about the Tavistock is that they were pretty much all of them labelled transphobic yeah. you know this suggestion and and nowhere else, really, very few places else, it's, has there been such an attack on experts? You know, we're obsessed with experts at the moment. But mm. When actual psychotherapists and psychiatric nurses come out and say, hang on a minute, in my experience with working with people like this and kids like this, I can tell there's something going wrong. And actually, one of the insights that Marcus and Susan told me was that, you know, part of the problem with the Tavistock, you know, talking about what Luke was saying, how did we get here? Is that because you had a, a center which became world leading and you know, yes. the best in the nation, it's things snowballed. And mm. so you sort of, the more patients you attract, the better it looks because 
And, you know, there's a funding question there, which is, you know, some people might call cynical, but is an important role in it, which is that this thing just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you start saying yes and yes and yes to more patients, partly because you don't have the capacity and partly because you want to be able at the end of your year, say to your board, oh, we've treated, you know, X number of thousand kids. We've affirmed their, all of their genders. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and at the end of it, you have a large section of children who, you know, large numbers of children, particularly teenage girls who have been had their lives altered you know think about you know a woman like Kira Bell who's been brave enough to come out and say there are things about me now that I can't ever change back mm. because instead of you know questioning me as a precocious little person who you know thought I knew what I wanted and didn't and someone who was actually unwell and needed help you just said yes to me and I think that's we, we can't forget the tragedy behind this which is that there are kids who are being treated very badly uh, I wouldn't go as far as saying child abuse but there is something very wrong at the heart of this, that adults are celebrating what is essentially a kind of social contagion with some very dark consequences in children. You're watching The Spikes Podcast. While you're here, you should subscribe to our YouTube channel and click the bell so you never miss a video. But even better, to keep up with all of Spike's content, all of our brilliant articles and essays that we publish every weekday, you should sign up to our newsletter today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spike's content, plus some exclusive commentary. To sign up, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and click today on Spiked. That's spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and today on Spiked. Now back to the Spike podcast. So let's talk a bit about UK politics. Both of the parties seem to be racked by infighting of some kind. Let's talk about the Tories first. I mean, Ella, did you watch the debate? I think it's fair to say that there was a lot of heat, but maybe not so much light. Everyone's obsessed with the heat. Everyone, you know, they, I did watch the debate and everyone says, oh, they were so nasty to each other. And I thought, <laughs> oh, like, no, they weren't. They were, there was, it was incredibly performative. Mm. Um, and it, you know, I've said this before, but I know that tax is important. But I've really, I've like another debate on ta on tax and basically on timing on tax. Yeah, exactly. Which was that, you know, essentially they both have the same policy in relation to the economy, which is nothing different to mm. what the Conservatives previously hold. We've got no new massive industrial strategy, no new, any, not actually anything really about levelling up or anything like that, but just a question of, I'm going to cut taxes now. No, I'm going to cut taxes later. And, you know, and people call that a great debate, but there, <laughs> there's been, you know, I think to prove the superficiality of it, most of the discussion has been about whether or not Rishi Sunak mansplained, yeah. whether or not Liz Truss, you know, was wearing Claire's accessories, earrings, or whether it was a stunt. Stuff that yeah. just really shouldn't matter at a time when we're in such deep political crisis. It is the narcissism of small differences, isn't it, Luke? Yeah, I think that's exactly the phrase I would use. I mean, we've got to remember this is an internal mm. competition at the moment. There's not going to be that many people actually voting on yeah. this question. And so you would expect there to be a little bit of narcissism of small differences. Um, what is interesting is that Liz Truss is setting the economic agenda, mm. which uh, should come as a surprise given Rishi Sunak has been Chancellor for some time. Um, and his arguments against Liz Truss's proposed tax cuts, um, you know, Liz Truss's position being tax cuts now and encourage investment and lead to employment, etc., uh, Rishi Sunak saying, in, in, I mean, it seemed that the only argument he had against her proposals were that it would lead to an increase in 
mortgage in interest rates, yeah. which would be catastrophic if they did reach 7% as he was claiming. But the economist that was advising Liz Truss has since rolled back on his claim that mm. this would lead to a, an increase up to 7% and actually thinks it would lead to an increase of more like 3%. The Bank and of England- And he was only freewheeling anyway. You know, <laughs> so, yeah, figure exactly. out the air, right? No, exactly, <laughs> exactly right. And, you know, wh wh if it goes up to 3%, that might be acceptable. The Bank of England says that people could cope with an increase of up to 5%. I know it could have its own consequences. That, and it's, this is an important question about how to deal with the post-pandemic economy. Mm. Ella's absolutely right that it's not the kind of big wheeling ideas that you might think. And I just think it's interesting that Liz Truss is managing to, managing to control the economic debate with some relatively straightforward proposals that Rishi Sunak can't really meet with any robust economic counterpoint. It's, it's almost, if, I mean, Rishi is obviously trying to present himself as the sensible one. Yeah. So he, you know, even though he's behind in the race, he's still struggling to say anything bold, say anything different. I mean, there's something a little bit tragic in the way that you have almost like Rishi's a bit of a Blair tribute act and Liz aping Margaret Thatcher in far too many photo ops and in the way she dresses. And, yeah. you know, is this just a party that's run out of steam, really? Well, it's interesting that Rishi Sunak's claim to competence is largely unproven. Yeah. Because the problems that we are trying to deal with are the problems that have arisen during his period as, as Chancellor. You know, mm. this huge debt that we are trying to pay down is a debt that he accumulated as part of his response to the pandemic. So he doesn't have that many arguments about his competence to draw on. Yeah. Which makes his claims to be a new Blair kind of quite hollow. Mm. Um, I also think it's interesting about the role that the past is playing. You're absolutely right that they are both seeming to echo political figures of the past. On the one hand, you have Liz Truss literally physically trying to replicate Margaret Thatcher yeah. in the way that she dresses. It's the a way bit she, creepy. It's time. really strange. <laughs> it's really strange. And then on, you have the kind of Blairite references on, on, on Sunak's behalf. And I think both of them are more comfortable playing that role mm. than they are in coming up with anything which might um, inspire the electorate. It's very interesting as to who will who of these two candidates do you think are more capable of winning over the red wall yeah. <laughs> or, or attempting to maintain the 2019 coalition that, that formed around Brexit? Because that was a co it, it was a coalition of voters, wasn't it? Around yeah. a kind of red wall, ex-Labour voters and, um, and, you know, the West Country Tory base. Can either of these two candidates sustain that coalition? I don't see it. I would suggest neither, but then again, their best weapon is uh, Sir Keir Starmer, <laughs> uh, who we should probably talk about now. I mean, Keir's come in for a lot of flack for basically distancing himself from the rail strikes at first and now sacking one of his front benchers who is giving interviews from a picket line. Um, Ella, what have you made of this? Should it surprise us remotely that Keir is not really on the side of striking workers? Yeah, well, uh, lots of people seem to have woken up yesterday morning realising that Sir Keir Starmer is not a working class hero. QC. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, Mick Hume wrote a very good article about that for Spike this week, just saying uh, what part of this anti-Brexit kind of uh, lawyer, no offence, Luke, um, but you know, like he, <laughs> Keir Starmer's not just a lawyer, he is literally a parody of a lawyer. Mm. Um uh, Forensic here. Yeah, that, that made you think that this guy was going to be down in his donkey jacket with his sleeves rolled up on the RMT picket line. It's ridiculous. Um, but the, you know, it it the, it is worth noting that, you know, Luke's question about the Red Wall is very important. You've got Liz Truss, who is literally, as Brian Denny wrote for Spike this week, enacting the most extreme and unreasonable 
just bizarre kind of Thatcher parody attacks on workers' rights in the form of... Her enthusiasm for it was really yeah. striking. You know, when she was asked this sort of quick fire question, will you ban strikes effectively? Yes, yes. yes. She's sort of frothing at the mouth to try and in this way that it's going to perhaps, but I'm actually not convinced, um, you know, ring true with the Tory membership. I don't even think the Tory membership are that keen on attacking workers in this way, but will have no resonance with, uh, you know, in a general election scenario because people aren't mad. They can see that even if they're a bit pissed off at rail strikes or something like that this week, that having this wide ranging attacks on people's Mm. ability to enact industrial action is out of this world. So you've got her doing the kind of like race to the nasty pasty again, as Brian Denny puts it. You've got Rishi Sunak who, you know, on a superficial level wears 450 pound Prada loafers to construction sites. And like, you know, he's just not, he's not with it. He doesn't, he doesn't know what it's like to be, uh, you know, someone living in Sunderland or something like that. I think that probably matters. You see, you know, he kept his California green cards (laughs) even while he was chancellor for quite a while. And then you have the Labour Party, which at a time, which is constantly, this is the important point, constantly talking about the fact that it's the party of working people you know, pointing the finger at the Tories of the cost of living crisis, saying, how can you, bleeding heart, how can you really let it be a situation which people are choosing between heating and eating? And the minute a working class person raises their voice and says, you know, actually, I've got something to say about this. I'm going to fight the situation that I've got. They're nowhere to be seen. Mm. And I think that, you know, the idea that the Labour Party has anything to do with Labour is a fallacy. We've been saying this for 20 years or more, Mm. you know, that this is, it has never been. And I think the culmination of the Labour Party in a figure like Keir Starmer just proves how wrong any of us have ever been to think that it had any potential for working class change. And if it takes an internal spat over some of its MPs going on picket lines, then so be it. Look, I mean, just thinking about the left quickly, you know, they're all having a go at Keir for not supporting the strikes. But you know, they were just as complicit in everything Keir Starmer was trying to do in relation to Brexit, in relation to overturning the votes of millions of working class people. You know, who do they think they are? Yeah, I agree. I was listening to the radio this morning and a certain centrist DJ was referring to the left <laughs> of the Labour Party as an irrelevance. And I think that is the calculation that Keir Starmer has made. That mm. Effectively, he can sideline um, the vast, the big numbers in the uh, Labour membership yeah. who are of the left. Um, that might turn out to be a reasonable calculation in due course. But I think, you know, Ella's right that this really has put pay to the idea that Labour has any connection to working class interests. Mm. You know, this follows on from West Streeting. I think the last time I was on the podcast, we were talking about West Streeting being chastised for coming out and even supporting the possibility of strikes. Yeah, And the, the, the kind of calculation that Keir Starmer's making is that um, in opposition, you don't support strikes because the government would not support strikes. And you sort of think, well, again, where are you going to get your base from? Mm. Where are you going to draw your votes from? And I think the left of the party, who I do think have some legitimate complaint that they foolishly <laughs> elected a leader yeah. on the base of a pack of lies, you know. More for them though. You know, exactly. What did they, of course, that's, <laughs> of course. Um, we, we, we said a number of times that they were foolish to do so. But how long can this party go on for? Mm. Because you do have a kind of zombie organisation attempting to unite two groups of people that now openly loathe each other. I mean, the, the loathing is becoming even more open with every day. And how do they go into the next election? Because you have a, you know, the one thing the left of the party were good at was kind of galvanizing an activist base. They had people out on doorsteps. They were, you know, relatively good at communication and that sort of thing. Now, even that seems to have evaporated. And it's very difficult to see 
how Keir Starmer generates a kind of ideological basis for fighting another election. Because say what you like about New Labour, it was to some extent a new idea. They had some ideas. It was a t- it was a move against an area of the Tory base on things like law and order. It was, uh, you know, constitutional reform was a big part of their package. We haven't seen anything yeah. from Keir Starmer's Labour as to what they would be doing differently. So you have a kind of odd infighting zombie organisation who at the moment just don't seem fit to run an election campaign. So the England women's football team are in the final of the Euros, but not everyone is happy about this. One BBC presenter decided to complain on air that the team is all white. Let's take a look. The finals, but all starting 11 players and the five substitutes that came onto the pitch were all white. And that does point towards a lack of diversity in the women's game in England. And funny enough, this this has actually been one of the BBC's most complained about moments of uh, the entire month. So <laughs> clearly the public disagrees with this ass- uh, assessment. Ella, what do you make of it? It's just very funny that you know at the moment when the whole narrative around, rightly or wrongly, around women's football and this particular competition is about, you know, inclusivity and, and mm. everyone sort of, you know, like saw from grinning about how happy they are that women's football is back on the map. And how much we love watching women's football and have always been fans our entire lives. It almost puts you off because you're like, you have to love it, even though it is actually extremely entertaining and most of us are authentically quite excited by it. Um, that someone would come along and just just shit on it. It's just, mm. just wreck it. It's like, <laughs> yeah, but they're all white. It's like, oh, come on. There's a real sort of miserliness to mm. this. Um, and it shows you, the, on a serious point, it shows you the kind of the zero-sum game that is identity politics because it can just never be good enough. You know, yeah. like if half the team were black, then it would be like there's too many able-bodied ones. If, you know, it just could just keep going on and on and on. Um, and so I think that it's right that most people complained, despite the fact that we usually say, can you know, complaints to Ofcom or things like that are really lame yeah actually if it displays a little bit of public um, dissent then maybe it's a good thing yeah a bit of pushback against this kind of mindless racialization of absolutely everything and it's interesting because it's not even you know looking at some of the facts and figures around this it just so happens that this squad is particularly white but over the years i think it's between 2010 and 2020 there's actually been a disproportionate number of um, black female players who've been capped and fair play to them you know let's not squash their quota either that would be obscene luke what have you made of it well let's just take a moment to reflect how amazing this competition has been for women's football it's such a great thing that there is slowly a kind of parity emerging between men and women's football Mm. Uh, and the same is happening in other sports like women's boxing is becoming absolutely massive and the female stars in boxing share the stage with 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 men Uh, and you know it ties into our earlier conversation about gender you know women's sport is worth defending worth standing up for and i think it's fantastic that women's football is now uh, taking the place that it that it has um and you, you know you're right in the sense that to complain that the squad is too white. I mean, women's football is relatively new. Yeah. You know, in terms of professional football, it's only been a couple of decades that women have been playing professionally. Uh, and far less than that, you know, in terms of its um, its evolution, uh, you, you know, the, these players are, are players who could never have made it to this stage even 10 years ago. So, so to comment on skin colour is completely ridiculous. Mm. And thankfully, I don't think it will cut through the genuine euphoria that people seem to be experiencing around this competition. Yeah. Because people are enthralled that we are now in the final. Um, people seem to be getting behind it in ways which just hasn't happened before. And I think that has to be a good thing. So it also illustrates for me how sometimes identity politics can only go too far because mm. I don't think many people out there in the public getting behind the lionesses are seriously worried about whether these players are white or black. 
And Ella, what do you make of the way that sort of the white is kind of implied as a bit of a swear word? Because, you know, no one on the BBC had to had to fill in the blanks and say, and this is a bad thing. Mm. It's just, you just kind of know that it's bad. It, it leads to the ridiculous situations and conversations you see on social media where people then start talking about white racism or like, or, <laughs> yeah, you know, or where people start white saying- White fragility. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, you know, the, uh, the whites are being attacked, you know, but there's, that's what mm. happens when you have this kind of level of discourse around identity politics is that people take things as Luke say, don't matter mm. re- and shouldn't matter and create a kind of politics around them. I mean, you know, like Jon Snow talking about the crowd of um, protesters. The pro-Brexit protesters. Yeah, being yeah. so white as if it's like- it's like that's terrible, yeah. and yeah, and you know, you do just think, well, actually, the reality behind this, with the Jon Snow thing, probably less so with the Lionesses thing, is that most of the time, what people mean is it's so working class, mm. or a lot of the time, what they mean is, you know, the American equivalent is so white trash, yeah, because that's that's the intonation behind it. It actually often has nothing to do with the the group of people's actual skin color. Those are the people being racialized as white. Mm-hmm. I also think it's worth pointing out that sometimes people just think they ought to say that. Mm. You know, they think they, this is just what you ought to say when mm. a group of people happen to be white. It's sort of expected that you point out that they're white. Yeah, And it is very strange. It's a strange way to react to what is otherwise a euphoric event. You know, mm. a national team being in the semi-final, the elevation of women's sport to a place it hasn't been to ever before. And you react to it in a way which you're sort of oddly expected to. And it just sounds odd. For most people, it just sounds weird. But I think there is this ex- expectation that you point it out. Like Jon Snow, mm. he just saw that crowd and thought, well, I probably should say that they're all white. But he wouldn't have said the same at an Extinction Rebellion rally no. or when, he went, when he's been Which to Wimbledon. Which really is and, really white. Yeah. I mean, I have to yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, like, you know, Luke's right. You shouldn't say You're going to do your ethnic bean counting. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to notice it more there. Yeah. You're seeing more and more events now, aren't you? Glastonbury. Yeah. Latitude, obviously. <laughs> all of these are just predominantly white yeah and being criticized as such well you know let's wish the lionesses the best of luck and let's hope the bbc doesn't ruin it with its inane racial commentary thank you for listening to the spike podcast we're back every friday and you can now watch us on video too check us out on youtube or go via the spiked website which is spiked-online.com see you next time